your natural tendency as a designer, as a business owner, your fear is to price yourself out of markets. Not knowing and understanding that that actually propels you into a better market that is huge and exists out there. It was an instantaneous turning point in every aspect of my business. And lo and behold, the business, the demand did not slow down, it increased. many mutual friends who sometimes egg us on to do things. They might say, go eat that food or go to this country. And sometimes we do it. And most of the times we don't. But Brett, you're one of those people where our mutual friends on the internet said that you guys should have a conversation. And I saw your profile. I'm like, let's talk. But beyond that, I have not prepped for this call. So I'm going to be discovering things as our audience and listeners are going to find out about them. So first of all, Brett, please introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so my name is Brett Williams. I uh, really am a designer by trade. I've been designing since uh, 09, so a little bit. And I run a not so fairly known agency called Design Joy, which is a design subscription service. So sort of a nuanced take on the agency model, just spun up in a little bit different of a way. So I've been running it for six years and the, the catch is I do everything myself. So it's a one, one man agency at scale of a, of a big, of a big agency. So yeah, I've been, I've been kind of sharing my journey as I've built it and all the struggles and all the successes. And yeah, I gotten a lot of people interested in kind of um, minds open to kind of what's possible if you productize design. This is perfect. When did you make this transition from doing it the way you used to do it to doing a subscription-based service? Yeah, I did it the summer of 2017, coming off of a inevitable layoff at a boring corporation, boring you know UX UI job working for someone else. I was always had kind of the entrepreneurial spirit, if you want to call it that. And at the time, there was another agency called Design Pickle that was doing it for. Oh, yeah. Um, subscription-based plans for graphic design, but there had nobody before done it for the more premium end of things like branding and product design and landing page design. So I filled the gap and launched Design Joy. I see. It's quite interesting. So you saw a different way of running a business and you thought, hey, that's pretty cool. But what if we just did this for a higher end clientele instead of it being an army of designers, it's an army of one, right? So far, so yeah, good? yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you got it right. Yeah, um, they, yeah, Design Pickle has like thousands of employees. I have one. I just targeted the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of clientele and the type of work, but apply basically the same business model. Okay, now subscription is a fairly new concept, especially mm -hmm. in bespoke service space. Yeah, and so let's make sure we're all talking about the same thing. Uh, most people will know of several different ways of pricing. Subscription will be probably the newest one. And if you're listening to to Ronald J. Baker, he's like, this is the future. This is value-based pricing 2.0. And he gave me some examples of it, but I didn't know anyone in the design service space that was doing it, doing it effectively and doing it well. So I think we're going to do a deep dive on this on today's conversation. And I hope to learn and unpack as much of this as possible with a person who actually is doing it. You seem pretty happy pretty well balanced. So he's not ready to kill himself. He's not jumping off the ledge here, everybody. So it must be working. <laughs> Wasn't always okay, that so, way. Yeah. Right. So we'll, we'll learn together with you. Okay. Uh, through your trials and tribulations. Most people who work call themselves uh, like a business owner or an entrepreneur when in fact, they're mostly outsourced contractors for other design firms. And you typically would charge hourly and you turn in timesheets and w whatever. You just bill based on hours that you work. Yep. Then some people migrate towards project-based fees where you guesstimate how long it will take you to do and you assume a certain amount of risk. Therefore, you can charge a little bit more. If you do this really well, you'll make a lot more money. If you do it really poorly, you go out of business because you'll be basically subsidizing the project with essentially low or free work. Precisely. Yep. Then some of you might get some clients, right? And work uh, like it's a beautiful relationship 
they might put you on what is known as a retainer. So a retainer is them basically buying in bulk and committing to you a certain amount of money in advance of doing that work because they love working with you so much. And so it gives you some stability. It gives them some cost savings. What is the difference between a retainer and a subscription or are they different? Yeah. Right. Um, in some ways, they're the same. Uh, it's you know a reoccurring fixed price, but um, it, it's the way that it's 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 a subscription is a, I guess a more um, familiar term to those that haven't previously partaken in retainers with agencies, and it's it, the whole point of this thing is it's it's productized, so it's it's selling design like it were a physical product. It's a recurring fee. It's a fixed fee. I charge five thousand dollars a month. That's the only option that you have other than, you know, quarterly and yearly plans. And the outcome is fixed as well. So there's fixed parameters around what you get for that price. And then you can pause or, or cancel that subscription anytime you want. So it's just a more leisurely way of selling it. But in theory, it's, it has a lot of similarities between a retainer and a subscription. How do you have fixed outcomes? So when I say fixed outcomes, I, maybe that's not the right word. So if you go to, you know, uh, sign up for a piece of software, right? There's going to be a, a pricing page with some, with some pricing cards and some features associated for, with that plan. That's how I sell design. So if you go to my site, which is DesignJoy, you'll see that plan. You'll see that you get, you know, what I call unlimited requests, unlimited revisions, two to three day turnaround on requests. You get all of these inclusions within your, your package, um, and then that's the fixed outcome part. Now, the actual output and volume of output is variable depending upon the client, depending upon several factors, like how, how fast they are provide feedback, you know, how frequently they actually have a design request. So you end up paying the same amount whether you use DesignJoy a lot or whether you don't use it at all. That's the whole point of it, right? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you, a lot of people say, is this kind of like the gym model, uh, you know, where you sign up for a gym? I have one. I have a gym subscription, never go, right? Is it kind of like that? And you kind of rely on that. Um, not really. I mean, no one, no one's going to pay 5K a month, not use it at all. So it's not quite that drastic. But there's certainly 20, 25% of the, the clientele who continue to pay that rate per month and, and very, mo like very much underutilize it. But they're okay with that because it's something that is there if they need it and they're okay with eating the cost if they don't, don't want to use it. So the benefits sort of outweigh the cost of it just letting it run and paying for it even if they don't have a need. Naturally, otherwise they'll pause or cancel it. Mm -hmm. So as a one-person studio, how many clients can you sell subscriptions to in a given month? Yeah, it's funny because if you're not familiar with me, which you're not, um, this will probably blow your mind a little bit and you'll have probably a lot of questions. I'm ready a lot to be of, blown away. Um, <laughs> so it's not as crazy as it used to be. So at the height, okay. if you were to talk to me a year ago, I was yeah. about 30 to 40 clients a month that I was managing. Woo! And most of them, most of them were um, in the technology space. Most of it's B2B SaaS companies. That's who, that's the, the sphere of which I'm, I'm most well known in. Um, mm -hmm. so I don't do a lot of the other stuff like e-com and all that. Uh, today it's about 20 to 25. Okay. So I'm going to do the math here, everybody. All I can say is it's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. That's, that's like, this is crazy. This is fantastic. Okay. We're gonna have a good conversation today. <laughs> if you on the low end are servicing 20 clients who are paying you $5,000 a month, you are bringing in a hundred thousand dollars gross revenue. Yeah. Give or take. Yeah, my, my math, uh, give or take, because they might do a, a quarterly or annual plan. It might get a little cheaper, right? Is that the idea or no? Yeah, and I, and I have a few clients who are, are on sort of like retro pricing, so they're not paying the full okay. amount. So I don't okay. actually track my MRR anymore, so I couldn't even tell you what it is, but it's, I know my okay. clientele because I look at it every day. So you're doing north of a million dollars in revenue a year doing a subscription model. Mm -hmm. You don't have bags under your eyes. I probably do, but I have lighting on them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably mean, do for sure. <laughs> let's let's um, talk about that. Then. How many hours a week are you working? Yeah. So today, um, so it's worth it's worth noting that this thing took off like a rocket ship about the same time COVID happened, and so okay. there was about a two to two and a half year period where I was working constantly. I have I have three kids. I have a wife. I, I was pretty much MIA. It was awful. It was the worst and probably best time of my life. 
And I was working around 12 to 13 hours a day. Some There might be a 10-hour day here and there, but I was working pretty much around the clock. And today I work about six hours a day. So I work less than a full-time gig and make really good money doing it. You, you sound a little guilty. There's no reason to feel guilty. You make a ridiculous amount of money. This is freaking awesome. So happy for you. Yeah, I mean, What was the big change that you were able to cut your workload down by half and yet still service yeah. 20 clients. This is kind of unfathomable for a lot of people. So yeah. you're, you're probably wrecked right now, everybody. So pull yourself together and we'll get into this and we'll learn how you did it and what we can learn from it. Okay, so how did you cut your workload in half? It's worth mentioning that I never intended for this to be anything. It, it was literally a weekend project for me. I had a full-time job until just a couple of years ago. I've been doing this for six. So it was never intended to be what it is today. And um, there's certain things that along the way that just sort of took it to the next level overnight. And then uh, about six or seven months ago is when it really took off. It was a tweet on Twitter by a guy named Dan Rowden on Twitter. And it went took my revenue from 80K a month to 160 a month in a matter of a single month. I And I was still doing all the work. And I, to be honest with you, I hit like the worst point in my life where I hit um, max burnout. I was never burnt out before. I was like a literal machine at design. Like I felt like I was a robot. I would never get burnt out. I loved doing this stuff. I crave it. Like it's it's such a passion for me. And I, I burned out. And uh, that was the first time in my life I had ever experienced anything like that before. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to work. I didn't. I like I hated everything I did. And I just overnight canceled all my calls that I had for, you know, prospects signing up, doubled my rate and didn't even allow people to book a call. So it's like, yeah, you're not probably going to spend 5K a month um, without talking to me. So, you know, I, I reduced the number, I, I kind of like reduced the number of signups and cut some clients who were, who were pretty draining and who utilized it a lot and were pretty difficult to work with. So I refined my client list and ultimately was left with a client list that was really easy to work with. I love doing their work. Their work was fairly easy. So it's really a, a reshaping of my client list is how I'm able to now work way less, um, even though I still have a lot of clients that I work with. It's also worth mentioning too, you know, let's say for the sake of conversation, I have 20 clients. When I wake up every day, there's probably 10 of them that actually have needs on that particular day. And half of those are might just be in like the revision cycle. They might just have small needs, like revisions of stuff I've already done. And then five of them might have new requests. So it, it, at first you hear 20 clients and it's not really fathomable. But once you actually look at the, the specifics of it, you can start to see how if you're fast at what you do, you can make it work. But a part of that is also due to the business model, which we'll get into as well, which I would love to hear your take on it. Because I think there's going to be a lot of things that we perhaps may disagree with there, but and it, it speaks volumes to how I'm actually able to do it. So it's important. To summarize, the way that you were able to do what you do and cut your workload in half is you very intentionally and very purposefully sought higher quality clients. Yeah. So you went the opposite direction, which is what most people do, which is um, they take on more clients for less money. So they have to sell mm -hmm. more units of time in order to be able to make that. But if they were to double their rates, they could work with the same amount of clients and make twice as much money. Or the preferred thing is to cut your mm -hmm. workload in half and service the ones that you have better. Spend more time working with the ones. And this is a concept that I think a lot of creative people still can't get over. I'd love to get your insight on this because one of the arguments is when I tell people being efficient and charging hourly punishes you for, for being good. And they can't get that because there's like no dummy. They, they actually use that kind of language on the internet. Mm -hmm. They say, no dummy, you do the work quicker. Uh, you could just take on more projects. So their answer is volume. So for the people who think the answer to growing a business is higher volume and then therefore lower price and just keep to just work more yeah. and more until you can't work anymore. How can you help them understand a, a different perspective? Yeah, I played the volume game for a good four Fairly. years. Um, severely played the volume game at a, at a limit that I don't think really much people can comprehend as a designer. And, you know, I wouldn't say it was all bad. It gained me like I felt like I packed in 20 years of design experience in just a four year period just based on the volume that I was cranking out. So it did it did contribute greatly to what I'm able to do today. But 
I realized like, I think part of it's an insecurity. I think as a designer, I don't think I'm the best designer out there. I wouldn't say I'm anywhere close to being one of the best, but I, I was insecure on what people would actually pay for good design work. Like I thought, you know, charging 2K a month was a lot to charge. And, you know, I looked at the demand that I was receiving and thought, well, there's more demand than I could manage here. There's more that I, than I could ever take on myself. And so I just kept in- incrementally increasing. And every time I increased my prices, I thought I was doing it to sort of curb the demand a little bit and to distance myself from it and to kind of take on less work. And it's funny enough, it always had the opposite effect for me. I would get more work, but better clients. Um, and the clientele I had today compared to what I had previously is night and day difference on all accounts. That's why I'm able to work as, li- as little as I, as I do because they're, they're willing to pay. They have the budget. So it's not, they're not nickeling and diming you for everything. They're not trying to squeeze every little bit of juice out of you every single day because they've got to meet, you know, they don't have enough budget for another month, right? They're, they're okay with it just continuing to roll over and they stick around longer. Churn is less. It's just a game changer all around. I mean, it's really cliche, but I think most designers would be surprised by how much people are actually willing to pay for, for good work. Cause good work, good designers are so hard to find. Um, which is why I, part of the reason why I even created Design Join in the first place. Um, the rarity of talent is there's designers everywhere, but the rarity of talent is actually quite quite a lot because um, I mm. think there's a lot of average people who are just kind of in it for the money. They're not really obsessed with it, so they do okay. But then you take the guy that's like that's quick and can provide quality, which is like a combination to be reckoned with, like. The, those type of designers are rare. So people will seek them out and pay whatever it takes to get them. I mean, you know, it's not everybody. I did close a lot of clients off when I did my price increases, but it opened the door to a new host of clients that I never thought I could actually ever attain. Mm. There's a couple of things and I, I can't reinforce this enough. So I'm going to say this so that people don't get up all of me in the DMs later, which is our conversation today is predicated on two principles that Brett has mentioned already. So I'm going to say it again so that you know I'm hearing him and I'm saying it back to you so it's reinforced in you. You must be good, period, Mm -hmm. full stop. You must be good. And if you're good and fast, because not all people that are good are fast, a model like this could really be incredible for you. So if you're a person who's really good, but you sit there and you grind on something for like three weeks, the subscription model is not going to work because you're going to have a backlog of requests that you can't handle. So you have to be good and you have to be quick. Now, here's the thing. When you're focused and you know what you're doing, by doing what you do over and over again, guess what? You get quick. You develop systems. I'm sure you have all kinds of systems built, assets, ways of working, workflow in order to allow you to be quick. You hit the nail on the head. (laughs) Now, you all have heard me say this before. Right. So I, I need to say what you've already said so that people can hear this. So there it is. Yeah. No, that's the perfect disclaimer. <laughs> right. People have heard me say this before. If you want higher quality clients, charge more. Again, Brett has said this. There's something weird. This is a psychological thing, a hurdle that a lot of creative people can't get over. Like, what? What do you mean charge more to get higher quality clients? Something is different about the buyer. When you change your prices up into a certain point. Now, I want to ask you this question. I want to dive deeper into this. When you migrated from 2K to where you're at now, which is 5K a month, was there a clear turning point in which when you pass a certain dollar amount, all of a sudden the clients got easier and better? Yeah, I mean, that was the jump. So with 2K, I mean, 2K a month to spend on good senior level design work is quite honestly a steal. Like I felt like I was selling myself out at that rate at 2K a month. So the jump at 5K was, again, it sounds really cliche, but it was an instantaneous turning point in every aspect of my business. And lo and behold, the clients did not slow down. The business, the demand did not slow down. It increased. So um, for whatever reason, I mean, again, like your natural tendency as a designer, as a business owner, your fear is to price yourself out of markets not knowing and understanding that that actually propels you into a better market that is huge and exists out there 
it's okay to leave those behind. Now, I always, I always tell people too, if you want to service those lower markets, if you don't have the skill level or the quickness, like do what you can do in your own like status where, where you're at today, like and do the best that you can do at it. But I felt like I was underutilizing my skills and talents and charging too less for them and providing way more value at too low of a cost. And, you know, I saw that in demand. Like it was crazy how many people wanted to sign up for Design Joy. And at 5K, it's still that. There's still a, a lot of demand, but day to day business, like just day to day life in general, communication with clients, the projects that I'm working on, they have an understanding of how the process is supposed to work. And they're bought into that process and they value design, which is wonderful. It's not just a part of their business. It's a core part of their business. And when you work with clients like that, it's a game changer. When you were going from 2K to 3K to 4K to 5K, it was it just like every time you would raise the rate, you found that they're better clients? And if, if that's the logic and the answer is yes, would going to 7, 8, 9, 10K be like even better? Yeah. No, I mean, I started out charging $450 a month. So I've seen the wow. full scale of what clients look like at that rate and what clients look at, at 5K. And I still think 5K is low. Like for a senior level designer, I mean, you, you're paying what, 100, 120 in like a normal market nowadays. So 5K, 70K a year, whatever, is still fairly low. I could, I, honestly, I could charge way more than that, but my stress level would increase. So I don't want to go there, but I feel pretty comfortable working, a, you know, six hours a day and making what I'm making. But yeah, every single jump. Um, and the, the intention of me raising my prices wasn't to get more, more, make more money or to get more customers. It was actually to slow things down because of the, the floodgates. Like I felt like I was drinking out of a, a, a fire hose. So every time I did it, it had the opposite effect of what it, my intended to do. Right. Yeah, it's just, it is funny how it works. And you really have to, I feel like you, you can hear it over and over again. I know you've taught this. I, I've, I've got this from you for many years. But until you actually live it, it's hard for, I think it's hard for people to wrap their brain around. Yes, that is such the human condition that we cannot hear a concept <laughs> and understand it until we put ourselves through it. Like we don't understand the fire will burn your hand until you put your hand in the fire. You're like, ooh, that burned my hand. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> Help me understand this because this is fresh for you, relatively speaking. When you're working with a client that is paying you $450 a month for doing what you do, because you're not really fundamentally a different person, you're the same person, mm -hmm. versus the client that pays you $5,000 a month to do the same kind of work, what are the psychological differences between these two buyers of services? Let's go down column A. Let's call them the $450 a month client. What are they like psychological? Like if we're going to build a profile of them, what, what is their makeup? And this will be very clear if we can contrast the two. I don't know if this is necessary psychological, but the profile that I would describe those companies as, or the, they really most of the time weren't companies. They were actually like technical founders and people just had an idea and they saw Design Joy as a cheap and quick way to execute um, a website, a brand, or a whole suite of assets. And they didn't have a big budget. So they were. They were the most needy clients ever. Like they were constantly like on top of things. Like as soon as I would send them something, they'd be like two seconds in, hey, here's the feedback in order so we can just keep moving on it. And then a month goes by, budget's up. All right, we're gone, right? Bye. So they took everything that I had <laughs> poured my you know, passion into and then just took it and ran with it, which was fine because it's unfair. That's what I offered. I offered them the ability to do that. They weren't bad. I mean, they were fun to work with. It actually was some of the most fun projects. It was so random, but they were just so needy. I, I couldn't say really much more than that. They like, like attitude wise and how they treated me as, you know, as their designer was largely the same because I was still in an industry that I felt like respected design. Now, if I were to work with like local shops, I mean, that tends to be a lot different. They usually don't understand how this works, but yeah, I mean, they, they were just far more needy of, of my services. Okay, let's contrast that now with a client that's going to pay you $5,000 a month. What is the difference there? Well, I mean, first off, I have several clients who pay me 5K a month who may request one thing a month. Um, so, and they continue to pay the 5K. But they, again, like they, they value design really a lot. They understand its importance and they have a level, I think, of trust in me 
which every designer wants and, and yearns for is that level of trust that like, yeah, you can push back, but respect me as a designer, respect my experience. They do that really, really well. And they're very constructive in their feedback, which makes your work much more actionable. Um, you actually know what you're trying to achieve versus when you work with a lot of clients, you're kind of shooting in the dark, hoping something sticks. So clients are able to communicate their needs much better. Um, again, they're like, they're the opposite of needy. They have requests every once in a while, but other than that, you know, they're good to go. They don't stress it. And they have the budget to be able to, to work and operate like that. And so they stick around way longer. They have longer contracts and, um, I don't have to fish for new clients as often now. Great. I'm writing this all down. Okay. Here's a summary of what I got from you and feel free to correct me if I don't understand this, but I, I, I've been talking about similar things, maybe not in the subscription model, but let's let's go over it, everybody. So when you're working with a lower budget client, this is one, uh, what is it, one-tenth the budget. So we're talking about a very different kind of person. You said these are tend to be founders. They're not real companies yet. They're still looking to validate a business model, product market fit. So the psychological profile is they're looking to do things quickly to explore ideas and as soon as they get what they need, they need to leave because it's about preservation of cash. So oftentimes they're looking for cheap, down, dirty, and quick. They just need that. And because they don't have a whole lot going on, they tend to have a lot of focus and attention on the things that you're doing. So they tend to express themselves in a very demanding and needy way. They're very budget and therefore time conscious. So it's like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Isn't this what did? They're just right on you and they're riding you probably the entire time. And then they run when done. They literally finish the project and they run. The whole way that subscription or um, retainers, the, the way that subscription retainers work is that there are the ebbs and flow, like the peaks and the valleys. Like you lose money when you're doing the work all the time and you make money when it gets into the valley where you're kind of chill. So these people will come in and pay you, but as soon as they don't need you, they, they cut and run then it doesn't leave a lot of room for you to make profit. And I mentioned this, they're usually not established businesses. Let's contrast that with someone who's going to pay you 10 times as much. Well, first of all, they're, they're probably established businesses because who can afford to commit to $60,000 a year or more unless they have a business? They're educated buyers of creative services and they have less needs. And it's not that they have less needs. They got a lot more that they're dealing with. They're running a whole company and enterprise they have different departments. And so they're not sitting there looking at you every single minute. And they understand because they have a business model that when you give them high quality design and it works the way it's supposed to work, they make tons of money. So they're not so concerned about the volume or the or the hours in which you put into something. They care about the quality of the product that you give them and every everything that you deliver, they're going to feel the benefit of. And so by spending $60,000, they've already made the decision beforehand because it's a lot of money. They need to pick someone and trust them. You've heard that expression in business management. Find someone smart, let them do their job and get it out of their effing way. They, they're also, because I said they're an educated buyer, they've been here before. This is not their first rodeo. They know how to work with you. They know what the expectations are. They know what's reasonable to ask of you and what's not. They have a shared language. And so when you talked about constructive feedback, because they've done this before, whereas a first-time buyer of creative services they give you all kinds of crazy feedback. A lot of it's not actionable. Okay. Anything that I miss? <laughs> no, you said it much more eloquently than I did. I think one thing that I, that I want to add on to that that helps sort of illustrate the possibility of someone else doing this, um, and I'm not saying you, anyone has to do it exactly the way I've done it, is one of the luxuries of productizing something is that the clients who do sign up for your services are already bought into the way that you do things. So again, if you go to DesignJoy, the way that I run my ship is clearly outlined there. You're not going to sign up unless you're bought into those philosophies. And some of them are kind of wild. Like I don't, one of the notable things about DesignJoy is I do zero calls with clients ever for any reason whatsoever. Even if they want to cancel their subscription and they just want to chat beforehand, I have a zero tolerance policy for meetings. Um, communication is is very minimal. And oftentimes clients will request something and receive zero communication until it's done. So there's there's caveats and, and there's weird nuances about the way that I run my business that are very contrary to the way normal agencies run things. But because I define those things up front, 
on my landing page, they're already bought into it. So I don't have to experience clients signing up and then dealing with breaking the news that, hey, I can't hop on a call with you. Like they already know those things. So it's, it's, it's advantageous and it helps sort of, I guess, refine your client base naturally and, and protect yourself from letting bad clients get in, even though it does happen occasionally. But you, you minimize that by defining things up front. How do people submit a work ticket to you? So I do everything through Trello. Uh, I knew so, you were going to say it. I knew it. Yeah, I mean, it's just the most it. streamlined. Like it has no no distractions. I mean, people are already familiar with the way it works. Yeah. So it's a really simple process in Trello and it's dead simple. And you can sign up for DesignJoy in 30 seconds, which just makes it even more attractive because you don't have to hop on a call with me. You don't have to have a meeting. You're not on a wait list. Like it's instantaneous access. So it, it's very attractive to companies. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to our conversation. So you're giving us tactics now. So if you are curious about setting up a retainer or a subscription-based model and you can productize what it is that you do and that you're good and that you're fast, <laughs> we've set up a lot of ifs there. Yeah. Then the way that you do this is you set up a lot of conditions or terms in which to work with you. They're called T's and C's, terms and conditions. And you outline the work process so that it acts as a natural filter to remove anybody who doesn't feel like this is the way they want to work. The way that you're able to do this is if you buy into your program, the way it works, and the only way that you can do it for 5K a month is you kind of have to kind of work with me in this capacity. If you're, if you're not, I'm not ready nor willing to change the way that I work to accommodate one new client. It's not worth it to me and it'll wreck your process, right? So there's an expression that Blair Enns says, which is low variability in process equals low variability in outcomes. So if you don't deviate from the process, you will get what other people have gotten and they're happy with it. And I can stand by that. Everybody needs to understand that. So you need to document and understand under what terms and conditions you will work. And you get to dictate that because you get to accept them or not accept them based on those things. What's cool is when they try to deviate, you can point back to that. Not always, but you can point back and you can say, yeah, so that's what we don't do. If this doesn't work, feel free to cancel. And they know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like you're a, I feel like you're a professional in product services. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. And it's, it gives you a grounding to stand on and I'll be the first to admit when I started out, I was freaking desperate for clients. I mean, I was willing to bend the process in any way I see fit in order to land a client, whether that meant I was working in their own tools or anything or emails. Sometimes they use different, they want to use Trello. They want to use Asana. I'd be like, all right, whatever. And that, that like led to so many downfalls and I ha I'd have to keep that in the back of my mind and I'd make so many mistakes. And it just, um, it made the process of, I, how could I manage 30 clients when each of them had their own unique ways of doing things? So in order to like actually scale it and to manage it properly, yeah, I have a zero tolerance policy for anything that falls outside of my scope of work. The type of requests I do, how I communicate, meetings or no meetings, it kind of is one of those things where it's a take it or leave it type of service. So I don't, I don't bend over backwards or mend my services in any way, shape or form to land any clients whatsoever anymore. Yes. All right. Let's just quickly dip into Trello for people who don't know what Trello is. It's spelled T-R-E-L-L-O. And if you've ever watched an episode of HBO's series, Silicon Valley, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay. Now people who work in software, UX and UI are very familiar with this. Traditional graphic designers are like, what? Okay. So visualize this in your mind or a graphic will appear here. Imagine three or four columns. You don't want to get too many columns. And the first column is usually to do. This is usually where clients submit tickets for things that they need you to do. And then the next one is doing. So you, the creative would move to do to doing. So they know that it's something is happening. You can see some progress and, and just imagine like, like little sticky notes that are moving from one column to the next. And when you're done, you move it to a column called to review or for review. So it's okay, I'm doing it. And now it's ready for you. And if it is approved, then they can just move it to approved and then you can get rid of that ticket. Or they have some notes and then they would put it back into to do. And so you're constantly just moving cards around and you can't learn five different systems or 10 different systems. You need it to be one system because there's a premium placed on your time. Anything that you're doing that's non-billable hurts you. 
meetings are usually non-billable. It hurts you. Client interactions, project management, not always billable. It hurts you. So the way that you can work six hours a day and make over a million dollars or something close to it means you have to streamline all of this. Is that how you kind of use Trello? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's spot on. I think, you know, um, one of the key things that I wanted to avoid, and, and it's all in order to do this at the scale that I'm doing, every every decision that I make may seem in, in some regard as lazy or, or you don't care enough, but it's all purposeful. So Trello is a tool, like a, a tool for me that I feel like, again, a lot of people already have experience with, and there's not a lot of bells and whistles to distract you. So when clients get in, they know exactly what to do. I have onboarding cards. I don't even onboard clients. They just sign up. I send them an invite to Trello. Everything's there for them to understand how this process works. And then, like you said, I have a the way that mine is set up. I have a column that is the backlog. So clients, by terms and conditions, are allowed to submit as many requests into that backlog column as they want. Think of that as like your planning ahead column. Um, and then to the right of that, I have what I call a current request column. So you can drag one of those over there and let, and drop it. And that's the request that you want me to work on. You can only have one of those. In fact, if you drag two of them over there, the column lights up in yellow, indicating that. And then there's an approved column. You can move requests through those three columns in any which way you want at any given notice. And that's, in a nutshell, how it works. So it's precisely, you know, exactly as you explained. Mm. Okay, before we continue on, you said something that almost you just threw out there and you just walked away from. But you said... Within a month, you went from, I think, $60,000 to $120,000 worth of work because somebody did something on Twitter. I mean, we can't, that, that's a gold nugget right there. So let's unpack that. What happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? And what was the, how did, how did that result in you doubling your revenue for in a single month? Yeah, it's crazy. I actually went to 160. So it, it literally doubled. Okay, 160. Sorry. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I had been running Design Joy. I would say fairly quietly for the entirety of, of its lifespan. So since from 2017 on to last year, uh, I think it was February of last year. It happened. Yeah. February. I was doing moderately well, you know, making 80 K a month. And then uh, a gentleman that I've become friends with since named Dan Rowden, who is just a goat. He's done many, 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 many products and great developer, great, great entrepreneur. He actually tweeted what I was doing and, and kind of what the, the amount of money I was making doing it. It was just a quick, hey, this guy's making this much. Here's his service. I didn't have a Twitter at the time. Well, I did, but it, it was vacant. I had never tweeted before, never really logged in. And um, he did that. I, got, I remember getting a message on Intercom, which is the chat tool that I use or used on my website. I said, hey, I found you from Dan Rowden. I like your service. And I was like, who, who the heck is Dan Rowden? And then I logged on to Twitter, saw it was. And then that tweet ended up going massively viral and led to not only an additional 80K in MRR, but 100 plus bookings. Um, the only calls I do for Design Door are those that are looking to chat for 15 minutes before they sign up. I had 100 of those booked. And those were the ones I ended up canceling when I hit, hit the wall that I described earlier. I see. So it could have done potentially way more than that had I like either scaled, hired a team, whatever, but I stopped it. But yeah, literally, literally revenue doubled within just a blink of an eye because Twitter had finally found out about productized services and it wasn't, there wasn't a community there beforehand. If you're not active on Twitter, how does Dan even know about you? It, was he a client or... Were you featured somewhere for him to find out about you and then want to share that? Tell me about that. Yeah, so I, I'm a big build-in-public guy. I know there's a lot of debate around that. I, I've built DesignJoy in public since day one. Um, I got inspired to build DesignJoy by those building in public on, an, on a platform called Indie Hackers, which if you're not familiar with it, I mean, Indie Hacker to me is just some, some guy or girl just bootstrapping their business, doing all the work themselves, hacking it together to make it work. I took kind of like affinity with that community on IndieHackers.com, started publishing updates around DesignJoy. Anytime I'd publish an update, it, to be honest with you, it sounds super vain, but like it was usually around revenue that I achieved because I kept achieving more and more and more. And so I published it. And I think it was a pretty notable thing for a one-man agency to be making this kind of money. So anytime I did publish something, it gained some notoriety. And he found a post on there when I hit 80K, I think it was, and he saw that and then tweeted it. Very good. 
So this is an argument for many of you who refuse to share transparently uh, and, and and not to participate in, in any kind of PR outreach, marketing, social media content, because the unintended benefit is Dan saw the progress or potentially some one thing that you shared and he was blown away by the unique combination of you being a one-person studio doing subscription-based pricing and being able to do the kind of revenue that you've been able to generate. And he shared it with the public and he must have a pretty decent sized following because this is such a radical concept for many creatives to even see or understand that he shared it and it caught. And then now it grew beyond service professionals. It was clients seeing this and saying, Hey, this sounds like a great idea. We can afford this. Let's go do it. And then you're just overwhelmed with the amount of requests for you to talk to them, right? Yeah, and that was just the like that was just the immediate effect of it. Mm-hmm. But since then, because of that tweet, I've been able to grow a following on Twitter. I would say it's not as big as yours, but I would say a mildly decent following on Twitter. And that's all I do now. I've never really had to work for lead, you know, to gain leads and stuff through Design Joy. I've usually did indie hacker stuff, and that would bring in some leads and, and, and word of mouth spread from there. But Twitter is the only thing I do nowadays. I tweet once every few days, um, usually about Design Joy or the idea of product services, and gain the following there. So most of my clients, in one way, shape, or form, come from there. I have to get into this part where most people are going to be scared. Where you say, okay, we're going to do a retainer subscription model. The first fear, and it's a well founded fear which is I'm going to get reamed. They don't use the word reamed. I'm going to get so much work. I'm going to get abused. And, and how do I manage not selling it for ultimately minimum wage because I'm doing so much work? How do you control that? I think your insight on this is going to be critical. Yeah, I think a lot of people do get scared. They, they see the word unlimited and they think, how on earth do you do that for one client, let alone... 10, 20, 30, 40. I mean, there is a certain level of clients that is too much, but the way that you control that is by that one request at a time rule. So again, like I spoke about early on, you take a subset of a subset of a subset of your clients actually have big things going on at any given time. It's somewhat manageable that time. But again, like it's one request at a time. And I, I, I teach people too. So I do a lot of like, I just, I'm about to launch a course. I do a lot of coaching calls with people wanting to do this sort of thing. The thing is like, I don't teach people. I've never taught people how to make a million dollars a year running a productized service. That's the wrong expectation. I don't think, I don't wouldn't wish that upon anybody to go what I've gone through in the last you know five, six years. I teach people to take on five clients, charge them $5,000 a month and make 25 grand a, a month, which would be, which is life-changing money for anybody. And if you can just drill it down to that and make it that simple and concrete, it's not easy because I don't conflate being simple with being easy, but it much, makes it seem much more attainable because under this model, I mean, if I took on five clients, I'd be working an hour a day. You know, it'd be very, very easy to, to work with five clients under this particular model. And you're able to like treat them really well. You're able to over deliver. I mean, you're able to do daily work for clients at that rate if with that few clients. So that's, that's what I advocate for. I don't want get people to get the wrong idea that they should try to emulate what I've emulated and get 20, 30, 40 clients. I think that's the wrong idea. And I don't think that leads to anything that's remotely sustainable unless you to build out a team. But yeah, once you start, once you simplify it down to that concept, it, it starts to see, not seem so scary. And then you can always adjust. I mean, that that the the process of design joy has been a process of adjusting and evolving and figuring things out. And I'm still figuring things out. I don't I quite have it all together whatsoever at this point. But yeah, I think the idea is is lower your expectations and just target five clients. You know, there's eight billion people in the world. You can find five of them <laughs> willing to pay what you what you want to charge and and go from there. Yeah, I think targeting certain sectors make a lot of sense. You had mentioned earlier that it was B2B SaaS and and they understand the value of design in the way that you deliver it. If you're working in, say, logo design, somebody might not think that it's worth $5,000 ever, let alone a month. Sure. So that becomes problematic. So you got to target the right kinds of buyers, educated buyers who, when receiving delivery of said services and products, that they feel 
a greater value from receiving that than they paid and they'll stay with you forever if you keep doing that. The critical part that we'll underscore here is that they can put in as many items as they want in the backlog, but they can only put one into a request for you to work on at a time, right? That's that's the bread that's and the butter of it all. That's the on, only right. way it works. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they are forced then to prioritize and how quickly you can move through this is entirely up to you because there are, what did you say, 48 hours? Or was there a time? On average, a typical frame? size request is 48 hours. Yep. Okay. So then that means that whatever is sent to you, you have to be good enough and fast enough and the task has to be really laser focused so that you can get this thing done. Because some things, as, as we all know, will take longer than 48 hours and that cannot be something that's part of your services. Otherwise, the whole system breaks down again, right? No, it actually can. So I, I, in theory, clients could request a design that is uh, large in scope, let's say an entire okay. website redesign that's 50, 60 plus pages. In that case, I, I, I split it up into two day sprints. So I'll deliver a chunk here every couple, couple of days and I'll deliver another chunk. And that, that request could sit in the current request column for months on the, in theory. So yeah, I don't actually define it that, that, that specific. Oh, I see. Okay. So if they put on a, a thing that might be a two month long project for you, it's just sits there and they're, I'm working on it. And do they get any kind of feedback that progress is being made? Yeah, every, like I said, touch bases are every two days on average. Sometimes they're daily. So it's it's a constant feed of updates that keeps them interested and keeps them happy. Yep. I don't ever go many days or weeks without any sort of updates. And all of them are tangible updates. They're actual designs, not, hey, I'm working on this. It's here's, this is finished. Go develop it while I finish this other stuff over here. Okay. So if you're building a, a complex uh, multi-page website, would the first thing be like, here's the wireframe or here's the content architecture, and then they get to sit on that and prove that? I think, and this is with any designer. So the one thing that makes my approach so different, and I know that there are, you could name many, con- and I could personally, this is not how I t- typically work, but through design where this is the way it's worked for me. There is zero process in the design of anything, whether it be a brand, whether it be a website. So when I get a request in, let's say it's a, it's a landing page for a SaaS company, I will crank that out probably in about an hour and go straight to high fidelity. There is no wireframing. There is no ideation. There are no mood boards. There is nothing. I let the design speak. I send it to them. Oftentimes they're good with it. Maybe they have minor revisions. So I've just skipped a bunch of steps that I could have taken that could have taken a lot more time to ultimately arrive at the same conclusion I would have if I had just jumped straight into it. So I call it assumption-based design. So I make a lot of assumptions. I do a lot of product design too, which is really risky to do assumption-based design. But my whole philosophy is put something out there, see what the client thinks, see what the users think. We can always come back and adjust. I mean, design is meant to be evolutionary. You're constantly improving it, constantly refining it. And we can skip a lot of the steps. And like I said, ultimately, most of the time, arrive at the same conclusion as we would have otherwise. Hmm, Very interesting. So you skip a lot of steps to get straight into high fidelity prototypes because you find that that to be the most useful tool in communication. Here you go. Here's the design. Instead of going through 17 different layers, here's the design. Let's talk about it and not talk about it, react to it. And then I'll go back and I'll revise it as needed, right? Yeah, but I think it's all predicated on what you said earlier on. One of the requirements of this is you actually have to be good at what you do. I mean, you have to have a high level of experience, which I feel like I've had so much experience with hundreds of companies through DesignJoy alone that I pretty much can take a request at this point, know exactly the way. I already have a vision for it in my head. It's just a matter of moving pixels around on the screen and getting getting it on paper. And so those assumptions, like I said, most of the time they're they're close and then we just refine it. But yeah, you have to be, you actually have to be good and you actually have to have experience to approach design in this way. And it's not the right way. Like in, and under cir- other circumstances without outside of a product service where speed isn't such a, a factor, certainly there's benefits in, in taking those, those steps to arrive going from low fidelity, wireframing, post-it noting, like all those sort of steps do provide value. But I've learned that through my experience utilizing it, I'm able to arrive there much quicker if I just skip all of those steps altogether. Right. How many years post-graduation do you think you need to spend in the field working as a professional before you can get to the point in which you can say with relative confidence 
I can make certain assumptions about what it is that you need. Yeah, I don't think it's not, I don't think it's a matter of years. I think it's a matter of two things. I mean, first off, I have an obsessive personality disorder. I obsess over things that I'm passionate about. And design has been one of those things since college that I've just surrounded myself with. I've just constantly in taking design patterns and aesthetics and branding and basically created a repository in my head so that when I have a request come across the table, I, I already have a million different directions. I feel like I could go with it. And I just pick one and run with it instead of instead of wrestling around with, whoa, which direction do I go? Through Design Joy, it's funny because the the thing that's allowed me to build Design Joy to what it is is by building Design Joy and going through it. You know, I've gone through with Design Joy the scalability that I've gone through and the number of clients that I worked with. Again, most people can't comprehend. I can't even hardly comprehend it until I've gone through it and gotten that experience. So it's less about years um, and more just about how much design experience you have. Because I, I don't have a lot of years of design. But that's not to say that a designer with twice as many years could do what I do. So it's really just about how obsessed you are with it, how much you surround yourself with it, how much you digest of it, and how much you do of it, and less about how long you've been designing. Is there any objective benchmark that you could share so that people are like, I think I'm ready for this, or I'm not ready at all? Objective? No, I mean, that's a, it's a really subjective kind of question. Uh, and, and, and I don't even know if I'm at the point where I should be doing that. I just keep doing it because it's working for me, right? Yeah. So if all of a sudden it stopped working for me and I would get, you know, I'd start delivering designs to clients and 90% of them would come back and say, hey, this is nowhere close, I would probably have to change the way I approach design. But as long as I keep getting the answers and the results that I want, I'm going to keep doing it that way. And the more experience I get, the, the better, more refined I get at that. And the less revisions I have to come back in at the end of the day and do. Yeah. So... I wouldn't say that like approaching design this way should be the norm for your typical designer out there because no one, no designer's really done and gone through what I've got done with Design Joy. I always tell people, take what you want from what I've done and throw away what you don't. And think for yourself, like if this is not the way you want to approach design work, so be it. I'm not going to tell you it's the right way or, or the wrong way. It's just what's worked for me based on my own experience. But there's no objective benchmark I, th I can think of. You mentioned something that you said you wanted to run the business model and we could debate or talk about it. Have we already talked about it or is there something that you wanted to specifically bring up? No, I, I mean, I think it was the it really, I mean, it was just what we talked about, the whole process okay. piece. I mean, I, I think that that, I don't get a lot of pushback from business owners on that because they ultimately just want a design piece done. They don't really care about, and a lot of times, at least the people I work, they don't care about how you get there. They're just more interested in the actual output. But I've known just from talking to other designers that it's not that way because it goes against everything I think you're taught as a designer, whether I didn't go through school, I, I'm self-taught, but I'm sure that they teach you <laughs> not to do this in design school. Um, and I'm sure that you even teach not to do this as well. But that's why I have the caveat that's like, under this specific model with this specific designer, it works. It may not work for you though. Mm. I mean, your whole ethos is really, I've done something, it's worked. If it helps you, great. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. Do what works for you. So it's hard to get upset at somebody because they're, they're not, you're not being like super prescriptive to saying, this is the answer to all of your problems. This is just my answer to my problem. And I think by you sharing this, I think a lot of light bulbs have gone off in terms of other creatives, like, I wonder if I could apply this to what it is that I'm doing, or I need to start thinking about that. So I, I have one more question for you, unless something else comes up, which is this, does your business model work best for you if it's just you? Or have you thought about scaling and adding people to your team of one so that you can do this at greater volume or to work even fewer hours? That's the million dollar question that I get asked all the time. And it's a, it's a fair question. And it's something that I, I've evolved with and struggle with for since day one, really. There's many different angles I could take of this. At the end of the day, I'm a designer. I actually like designing. Uh, I don't really have any aspirations to lead a team, manage a team, grow a team. Certainly being a part of a team is super fun. I've done that in the past. That I would love that in some aspects. But as far as managing people, it's not really something I'm interested in. I don't need any more money. I make enough money as it is as a one-man one man band. So it's not a money thing. And even from a time efficiency thing, it's not really that either because I only work six hours a day and I like what I do. So there's really, outside of those, time, money, or preference, there's really no other reason for me to hire 
a team and and go down that road. I'm comfortable waking up in the morning and taking care of myself and my family and that being it. There are some clear differences between you and I, but I appreciate and recognize and admire what it is that you do. And I think you can be a great resource for many people. So people, like you mentioned this, you teach and you do some coaching and you, there's a forthcoming course. If people want to find out more about you, Brett, and find out about how they can possibly switch over to this subscription-based model, which has many benefits, where can they go? What do they need to look at or read or watch? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I've been on several podcasts. So you can just look up DesignJoy on Google and, and probably find those services. There's some YouTube videos. Um, DesignJoy.co is my site. That's the the service I sell. And then I'm on Twitter. Brett from DJ uh, is my handle and basically share the ins and outs of running Design Joy and try to teach people that there are alternative ways to doing this the whole design thing. But yeah, and then I'm launching a course, uh, I think next week, uh, sort of running through the blueprint of what I've done to build Design Joy, the good and the bad, and what I'm still trying to learn. So it's kind of a tell-all, if so to speak. How much is the course? Uh, it's 150 bucks. Yeah, and I've had 1,600 people sign up for it in the last month. So it's grown quite a bit larger than I thought. So now I'm about to have about mm. a thousand competitors in the space, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> <laughs> but you, like you said, there's 8 billion people. There's, there's really not that much competition. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm joking. Yeah. I'm not worried. <laughs> okay. So 1600 people have signed up for this $150 course. I think that's a bargain. So if this conversation turns you on, I'm going to suggest you do a couple of things. One, go look up Brett on designjoy.co Go search for his name and see what he's written about, talked about, and you can probably see a bunch of things. If I go to designjoy.co, will I be able to find where this course sales page is? No, um, this, the course is called productizeyourself.co. That's the course uh, URL. Okay, wonderful. Well, congratulations. That's a crazy successful launch there. Well done. Way bigger than I thought. Yeah, I don't know how I did it. It just happened. <laughs> Thanks to Twitter. <laughs> the algorithms favor me right now, so I'm going to eat yes. it up. <laughs> well, I think I know how it happened. You are one of a very few people that I think can say that this is what you do. And you feel that you figured out a system. You're, you're, you're first in, you're, you're early, and you're doing it well when you have a lot of attention around this. So that's what first movers get. They get the benefit of that. And what was interesting to me was where this all began. So say what you will about these companies who have thousands of designers working for them, like Design Pickle. You just looked at the business model and you said, you know what? It's not all bad. The parts that I don't like, I'll change and I'll try it. And you started out pretty humbly at a very low rate of like $450 a month. And now you're up to $5,000 a month. So you didn't just jump way past where you think you could deliver. And that's a mistake a lot of people make too. They're like, okay. And you said this too, if you charge a lot more, it would bring different kinds of clients, different expectations, and would bring a certain level of stress that you may want to get to one day. But oftentimes I see people fail because they have zero proof. They don't know what they're doing and they're going after things that are way too big. Their eyes clearly are bigger than their mouth and their stomach. And so there's a lot to unpack from this episode. I believe your name has come up several times and then I think I lost track of it. So I'm just super thrilled that we are able to finally have this conversation because I do need to talk to more people that are in the creative service space, like you, who are doing well, productizing and doing subscription. Whenever I hear of a successful entrepreneur who is a creative doing really well in life, I could not be more happier. Like my soul is filled with joy. I'm smiling on the inside and on the outside because I just like it when people crush it and you seem to be like a good guy doing the right thing at the right time in the right place. So I wish you continued success. Thank you very much, Brett, for coming on the show today. Thank you, man. It's been a dream. Appreciate it. My name is Brett Williams and you are listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? 
head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.